Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trumbull from The Alex Trumbull Show. And unfortunately, I will not be able to be my normal, fun, laughing, joking self today. And that's because today we're going to be speaking about a very, very important topic, which is Afghanistan. See, as this was recorded, it is August 18th. And if you were to turn on any news station, you'll see the devastation the fear, the anguish happening in that country. And so what I wanted to do to provide all my listeners an opportunity to hear from someone who is nothing less than an expert in this area. And to be completely honest, I wanted to provide a space where it wouldn't be a news clip, a three-minute soundbite. I wanted to have a real conversation so you can understand and make a decision for yourself on where you stand on this topic. So our guest today is a good friend of mine, Mick Malloy. Mick is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Middle East at the U.S. Department of Defense. He is currently the National Security Analyst for ABC News and a regular contributor. He is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and the co-founder of the Lobo Institute. What you'll hear in this interview will not only be the technical aspects of what happened and what is happening, but he also brings a perspective that many can't, which is what is really going on on the ground? And what does it feel like to be someone who is one of the many Afghanis terrified for their life right now and the many U.S. citizens who are also trapped there? Now, with no further ado, let's get to the interview. Hey, everyone. This is Alex Trumbull from The Alex Trumbull Show. And um, unfortunately, I can't start this show off with a smile. I can't start off with a laugh. can't start off with a joke. Um, this is a very, very serious topic we're going to be discussing today. Um, and make lists, I guess let's just jump into it. Um, so for those who haven't been maybe watching this over the last few weeks, maybe last couple months, what is going on? So uh, it happened, uh, first of all, it's good to be with you, Alex. And I agree. It's, uh, you know, I wish we could have some jokes and talk about some white art stuff, but we're talking about Afghanistan and it's, and there's just no way to do that. So um, it started under the last administration. You know, I'm not a partisan person, and I'm, I'm just I'm just comment on the on the national securities as as they come up. Uh, they began a process of negotiation with the Taliban, not the government of Afghanistan, not really for the future of Afghanistan. It was simply a negotiation for us to leave, and that's it. Uh, I would I would argue that that was uh, a mistaken process and the wrong answer. And it was clear from the last administration that they wanted to withdraw all troops. Uh, then the previous, uh, now the current administration, even though the Taliban had broken that agreement uh, many times, they had breached the peace accords and by everybody's uh, determination, that means we don't have an obligation under an agreement if they continuously breach it. So I, I don't believe this idea that the hands retired of the current administration to be accurate. They could have they could have simply said, you have breached the agreement. I mean, they were 
violently taking over towns, which is obviously against the peace accord. And we didn't have an obligation to continue. Um, I would argue that uh, a minimal amount of forces, we only had 2,500. Uh, my understanding is that the military planners and the intelligence community estimated between 5,000 and 7,500 troops would have been sufficient for us to support the Afghan National Army, maintain everything that we fought for for 20 years, right? Um, and be able to do that consistently indefinitely. Now, it would have cost something, but it's far less than at the height in 2009 of 130,000 troops. Uh, our forces would have been in a combat area, but they would not be in combat. Um, the Afghan army uh, had, it was conducting 98% of the fighting. We haven't lost a person in 18 months. Uh, and, and I think that was, and, you know, I've lost a lot of friends there. I understand, you know, America's desire to have our troops come home. Um, but this, I think, was worth the investment. And I think it was short-sighted to depart. Because now we have, the, our whole strategic objective over there was to remove the Taliban and ensure that it doesn't become a safe haven for terror. Now the Taliban's back in charge, and it will become a safe haven for terror. Uh, so we have thrown those out the window. Our biggest adversaries, China and Russia, are moving in in our absence, and they are capitalizing on it. And I just don't see how, when it comes to the national security of the United States, this is a good decision. Well, <clears throat> well I think you already started answering my, my next question, because um, I've been speaking to a lot of people, including a number of veterans who, who as you said, they, they've, they've lost people, they, they've been hurt themselves. Like, they just felt like there's so much invested. Was it all for not? Then I also hear from a lot of people, like you said, who are just like, we're ready for this to end. Um, if you would reiterate, why should the average American care about this? It's nowhere over here. Why should they care? Uh, I think it's a good point. I can certainly acknowledge that there's differences of opinions. I was with a veterans group last night. Um, many of them had lost uh, a lot, including um, husbands. and Many of them lost a lot of limbs, quite frankly. And there was a diversity of opinion. There was some people that just thought it was time to go. Uh, and there were some people who, you know, are more like the way I'm thinking about it is um, if we really wanted to have a debate about whether it was worth thousands of lives, 2,448 lives on uh, just service men and women alone, not including my organ, old organization, um, in, the, in a couple trillion dollars, we probably should have had that before we spent it and lost it. So by the time we had the decision, made the decision to leave, we were not spending that much and we were not losing people. So that, was, that again, that's, that's my take. But to your direct question, like why should Americans care? I mean, this is a massive country of which it is easy, especially when the country is controlled by an extremist organization like the Taliban, for terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and now ISIS, which didn't exist, of course, 20 years ago, to move into these areas, plot external attacks against the United States and, and you know, kill our citizens. And then, of course, if something like 9-11 happened again, um, everybody would care and everybody would want to do something. If it did, Alex, just to... Just to play that hypothetical, obviously we all hope it never does, 
and we had to go back into the, the Af- Afghanistan to remove the Taliban again. We would be looking at a Taliban that is now equipped with hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. equipment uh, yeah. and ammunition, mm-hmm. aircraft, tanks, APCs. They have, they have, I mean, we all know how much we gave the Afghan National Army to make it an army. Now that is in the hands of the Taliban. They are a substantial fighting force. It would be much difficult, much more difficult. Uh, we also spent, I don't know how much money, developing their infrastructure, which includes the ability to exploit, you know, the natural resources, which is a great thing for the Afghan people. But as I think you know, and your listeners know, the Taliban's not going to do it for the benefit of the Afghan people. They're a despotic regime of which they're going to control all the wealth of the nation, and they're going to keep, and they're also going to drive, you know, the human rights that have evolved quite a bit in the last 20 years. I mean, we've had a female mayor of Kabul. That's gone. Females can't even leave the house in most places without a male escort. They've showed up at universities and been told they are never going to go back. I mean, it is it is going back to the medieval times when it comes to the rights of women in Afghanistan already. And to your point, yes, they're saying a little. They they know better on what to say, but I think you should look at their actions. And these are actions before the U.S. has even left. I think we can expect that it's only going to get more uh, atrocious and it's going to be a international humanitarian crisis. The UN actually speculates it'll be the worst of our generation. And that's saying something considering we have Syria and Yemen going on right now. So again, this is not a political conversation, um, but what something you mentioned is, you know, us pulling out, and there then being a vacuum that they then can grow um, and terrorists and whatnot can grow within the vacuum. I've, I've heard a couple of people say, well, we'll just be back in two years. Um, but I'm also, we'll be back because we need to be back in two years or so. But I'm also kind of not thinking that would happen because politically it probably wouldn't look good to go back after you've pulled out. Um, do you just think it just festers and grows? I think that's a very astute point and question. I mean, we, we pull out. I mean, I think it's too late for us to actually reinsert forces right now. The Taliban controls everything, and it just, it's just not going to happen. But, you know, the White House is not going to change its decision. Two years from now, when the Taliban has solidified its place, it's, uh, it's got its, its allies in Russia and China and whoever, Iran and whoever else they're going to try to align with. Um, and we already mentioned all the new weapons and uh, capabilities. And I, I think it would be very unlikely, even if we get attacked, we're going to try to go back. I think America will we'll do something. We, we'll take you know, cruise mission strikes or something like that, which I'm not opposed to if we're attacked, but it'll also do very little. Um, it'll be a very difficult, I think it's a stupid point. If a, it's certainly not going to be the president decided to pull out. It's going to go back in. Um, and quite frankly, this, in my opinion, and I think, I think most of the national security act, current acting national security experts were against this uh, position, and that includes the, you know, the current leadership at the Pentagon. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't speak for them, obviously, um, but that's what you know the media reports. Um, but on the political side, you know, this this was kind of, in my opinion, a bipartisan mistake. It was a bad decision, but it was then poorly executed. We haven't even got into the part of how poorly executed this was, um, you know, in the, the chaos that's ensuing right now in Kabul. But uh, for, for 
to make a decision to go back in after we that's that's going to be tough. I just I don't know what we'll do, but we will have to come up with a way to do what you're going to hear a lot of this phrase over the horizon. Um, and I can explain that the best I can, but I can tell you right now it's going to be very difficult. I mean, would you would you please over the horizon? Right. So when you're not present in a country, um, you have and you feel like you have to be able to conduct military or intelligence operations from outside of the country. It's uh, you know military loves their shorthands, right? So over the horizon means you're going to come from a country that's far enough away that it's going to be um, likely an aircraft. So it's not like bordering country. So for us, it's probably in Afghanistan. It's going to be Kuwait and Qatar. Um, we have we have the most powerful military in the world. I'm biased, but I think that's objectively uh, the case. And we can project force better than any military. And I think that's why we are we are where we are. So we can get aircraft, we can get drones to to, to get over Afghanistan. We can refuel them in the air. The biggest problem is if you're going after a specific threat to target it and you don't have the intelligence on the ground to know, you know, if it's happening, who is who is conducting the, the planning, where are they going to be? What do they look like? And these are all things we had when we were there. We had saturated uh, the, the ground with intelligence collection networks. And that's why we were so successful in getting most, if not all the leadership, not all leadership, but most of the leadership that we're going after, particularly in Pakistan, but also in Afghanistan, including, you know, Bin Laden. Um, we're not going to have that presence. And it's going to be, it's going to be difficult to have the effect that we want, even if we can get military assets, aircraft, et cetera, over the target. Um, also, they're going to try to deny us the airspace. So they're going to end up with a lot of surface to air missiles that are really advanced. And they're probably going to tell us that we can't fly over there. And that's going to be an issue. Doesn't mean we can't deal with it. But then we'll, then you're talking, we now, hypothetically, we now have a threat emanating from Afghanistan. We have to fly aircraft in. They're going to try to take them out, which means we have to suppress the Taliban. So now we're, we're actually firing on the Taliban positions that threaten our aircraft. Mm-hmm. And then we're trying to mitigate the threat by, you know, dropping ordnance on a particular target. Hopefully we have the right one because we don't have a lot of intel out. So you'll hear a lot about it. I'm sure the military will do absolutely everything they can to make that a reality, but it's going to be very difficult. Well, well to, to follow up on that point, I, I would I would agree with you. I'm not, I'm not a specialist as you, but I would agree that we the U.S. has the most powerful military in the, in the world. Um, I would go as far as say we're the most advanced and technical military in the world. Um, how did how did this last week just happen? Then, w- within days, the Taliban's overrun everything. How, how did it, how did it happen? So, you know, first of all, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge that you know hindsight has twenty twenty vision, right? So, yes. I'm, I was a person who spent most of my time trying to make things happen on the ground. Uh, and maybe wouldn't appreciate it. Somebody, you know, sitting back in the United States and, and crit- critiquing them. Um, but that's part of the process, right? And everybody, we should look at what we did right and wrong, you know. Um, so uh, they had a briefing today with uh, Secretary Austin and General uh, Milley. Uh, General Milley, and a, kind of an odd, uh, odd in the sense that he normally don't do this, talked about the intelligence that he had. He said one of the scenarios was 
the Taliban would take over within weeks of the U.S. departing. But then he said that nobody could have foreseen that they would have taken over in 11 days. So I don't disagree with that statement, although I would say 11 days at, and then a couple weeks after is not that much different. Yeah. Right? I understand there were other scenarios where they held out longer and there was some war. I think mm-hmm. the Taliban still would be successful in that. But if your worst case scenario, which is what you plan off of, is like just a couple of weeks after you fully withdraw your forces. Yeah. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah I just yeah. don't, I didn't, I saw what he was trying to distinguish. I just didn't see that as being that big a difference from the scenario. And then, I mean, we all watched it. I mean, the Taliban took over provincial capital, provincial capital, provincial capital, and they were just, there was no resistance, or the resistance was very small. So I think even if originally we thought it was just going to be a couple of weeks after we left, we could see that that wasn't the case. So I, I would be, you know, looking at that, I don't think it would have been uh, too much to say that we should have adjusted our plans. And what I mean by that is we should have gone to the Taliban and said, well, um, we're, we have already made a decision to leave, but we're going to do this under our terms. Uh, you're not coming anywhere in our problem. What do you do? We're going to, we're going to stop you and we're going to keep Bagram and we're going to send troops back in there and we're going to keep our combat troops and not, not, uh, send them home. And we're going to bring in more until we get the 5,000 plus American citizens out, which is an obligation. The, all the SIVs, especially the ones that already got the special immigrant visas, and then drew down our ends. And then we closed Bagram and take our troops out. Uh, it, to me, it looked like we did it backwards. We, we literally sent our combat forces out and closed Bagram. And then we left, you know, we had a small contingent of Marines which are guarding the embassy, and then the embassy to deal with everything until we decided that was a bad idea. And then we're, now we're up to 4,500 troops. Yeah. The president authorized 6,000 troops. So, I mean, to me, that sounds like we made some miscalculations. That said, we are where we are. So we made a decision I disagree with, and I think we executed it in a, in a way that wasn't very effective. Um, and now we're in a really difficult situation. So if you can get to the embassy, I mean, to the, to the military side of the uh, airport in Kabul, um, they'll get you out, right? But the Taliban is controlling who gets in and out. So just yeah. to give you an example, and I've had plenty of conversations where this is not a hypothetical. If you fought for the Afghan army, particularly for Afghan special forces, and you have an SIV, and for some reason we haven't gotten you out already and you're trying to get to the airport, would you like to go through a Taliban checkpoint? Mm-hmm. You don't think they have a list of who fought against them and killed a bunch of Taliban people? They do. So they're not going to be able to go through a Taliban checkpoint to get to the airport. Uh, we already talked about it. I talked to, um, and I want to be very general with this because of the current situation, but if you're a female and you lost your husband who was working with the U.S., but you ended up with the SIV, you can't get to the airport unless you bring a male escort. And if the male escort doesn't have an SIV, they won't let you pass. So it's a catch-22, uh, and that's a situation. Um and then that's SIVs. What about U.S. citizens? I mean, there's thousands of U.S. citizens there. And if they can't get to the airport, um, I think eventually we're going to have to make them very difficult. I understand the problems that come with it. We are going to send out a convoy and we're going to go get American citizens and bring them to the airport. And that might be met with opposition from the Taliban. But we're going to have to make the decision of what are we more concerned about? 
a confrontation with the Taliban because they don't have to. It's their choice. They can just let our convoy go. Or we leave American citizens in a country that's now been taken over by an extremist organization who is housed a terrorist organization. In fact, the deputy, uh, just to give you an idea, because people say, are they going to house terrorist organization? The deputy is Siraj Haqqani. He runs the Haqqani Network. It's a U.S. designated foreign terrorist organization. So the answer is yes. So it's, there's no easy answers here. So I don't want to pretend like it is. Um, but that's the current situation. So I'm going to make a turn in a second. But you, I guess I do want to really quickly just talk about what, what does it mean for the people on the ground? Right? We, right, there's a lot of talk right now about what does it mean to the United States? What does it mean to our presence and so on and so forth? Um, but could, could you give us a little more insight into there's an individual living out there with such so many freedoms and 11 days pass and it all has changed. Can you share yeah. a little what, what that might look like? Yeah. So I can give you just one story, which could represent millions. Um, a long time ago when, you know, without getting into details, we were on patrol and we found a young girl who uh, had a serious, serious medical condition. Um, we, we try to get her treatment um, internal to the country. And they told us essentially that that it wasn't available and that, you know, we should basically provide her with enough medication so that um, she wasn't in pain when she passed away. We decided that wasn't a good answer. So we did everything we could to get her real treatment in the United States. And she was treated and she uh, successfully. And there's a lot of great organizations back here, uh, NGOs that did that. Uh, and I give them great credit. And it was one of the, you know, one of the bright spots for many people that had anything to do with it in Afghanistan, just, just one little girl, right? Um, so it turned out her father, uh, who already had the only school in the particular province of which I was located, um, for females, girls' school, which is way out, it was way out there. So it was, it was only cobble. So it was really unusual to have a, and of course, um, this girl, and I'll leave her nameless, grew up in that school and eventually became another teacher in that school. Um, I heard yesterday that they went out to the school, it's been bulldozed, burnt, and they can't find either of those two people, um, which is super sad. And it really, you know, you, you hear it, you don't know them, and you're sad. But when you know them, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, you know, people can always ask, why should Americans care about these far from places in the world? Why shouldn't you care? You know, it's, it's, there's got to be more to it than just, you know, our particular place in life. Americans generally are really, really privileged. Um, and if they don't care, um, a lot of, a lot of bad things that don't need to happen in the world happen. It's just, that's my, that's my, me on the soapbox. Um, but this one person's story, now, this girl who's now, you know, a young woman, hopefully still with us, I would have had a different life in Afghanistan. She was on trajectory to have a different life. Um, she could have been involved in society. Obviously, she could have, you know, uh, I, I, met to, I got to know her father pretty well. I mean, I think this girl would have been able to pick her husband or not to have a husband. I think I'm positive he would have let her pursue education at a higher level and be part of society and be, you know, and I just don't think that's 
especially where she lives, is, is any there's any chance of that anymore. I, they're going to go back to uh, the females essentially never leaving the compound that they live in. Um, very little opportunity other than just very domestic childcare stuff to have any engagement with other people. Um, and it's just not the way in modern world that the rest of us should accept for other people. Uh, that's, that's what I would say. And it's, uh, you know, it's not Afghanistan's not the only place. Um, but the more you, the U S just retracts from the world, uh, the world is not better off for. Thank you for tuning in to The Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year-round. WEPA has been insuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting WAEPA.org today. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com slash courses slash networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code PODCASTFAMILY on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com slash courses slash networking. And now back to the Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. So again, it's just everyone who's listening knows I'm asking these questions because they're important questions. It doesn't mean I, I, I believe or don't believe in whatever I'm about to say. Um, I'm just prefacing it. Um, you know, I, I listened to a lot of C-SPAN as, you know, as I knew I was going to be able to talk to you, I listened to a lot of C-SPAN, hearing what people were just saying and something that consistently was brought up was in mean, president biden's speech he talked about how he they, they let the president know hey we're pulling out um you need to do your work be ready for it um and the government just wasn't didn't take it seriously didn't do anything you know people military laid down their arms there's a lot of people saying well how is that our fault how is that the united states fault that they didn't Again, this is not me. This is, but, but they didn't protect their own. Do you have any response to that? I guess. Well, I mean, I think that's a fair question, Alex. I mean, and from my perspective, if you look at it from their perspective, we weren't even involved in negotiations for us to leave, so they didn't ask us. You know, obviously, I mean, if you ask the president Ghani, if you ask President Ghani, you know, 
He's not going to say, I'm going to tell the Americans what to do. That's just not, if I think when the door was shut, he's like, don't leave. Uh, I mean, I think everybody can imagine that was the case. So then it goes, and this is going to be something that's looked at for decades. Um, I'm obviously, you know, a former military person, an agency person, and I was at the Pentagon. And so I know a lot of people that are from the same background. And it, and it is blown up with how did that happen? Because we spent 20 years building this military. So there's a couple things to add for your audience. So over 20 years, 66,000 Afghan soldiers died fighting the Taliban. So I know if you're only tuning in now, you're going, what the heck was that all about? They just quit and ran away. So I would put that a little perspective. I mean, they've lost a lot of people fighting. So the Afghan yeah. army did yeah. fight the Taliban and they lost you know, a considerable amount, right? Um, I think one of the things that will be looked at is we tend to do this, uh, when it comes to the military side of nation building, build a military in a mirror image of our own. We did it in Iraq. Mm-hmm. We did it in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And when you do that, um, not all militaries can function like the United States, which has a lot of resources, but a lot of resources into the military. So if you look at both the Iraqi army, when they had F-16 and M1 Abram tanks, and we built them like that, when we departed, they lost against ISIS, a ragtag, you know, pickup truck driving mm-hmm. with a machine gun on the back, they fled and left their tanks and all that stuff. And we were like, well, holy mo- how did that happen? Then we had to go back in, create the SDF, fight alongside the Iraqi forces and eventually defeat ISIS. Well, we didn't. Now, like, we didn't even act, we act like that. We didn't even remember that one when it wasn't that far. Yeah, ago. yeah. And then when we pulled out, we just told them we're leaving. And they're, and they're, they're designed to function like we are. So having close air support. They go into very remote areas and they fight, but they have close air support that allows them to both advance through, you know, superior firepower and then be able to withdraw when they need to. Uh, and then casualties and resupply and you're out of ammunition. Where do you get the ammunition? Well, it's going to get dropped, right? You're going to, you have the air, aerial resupply. So once we pulled that out and the Afghan air capability was nowhere near ours, I mean, it's not even not even the same species, if you will. I think it was a combination of the Americans are leaving and they had no confidence in us. They didn't even include us like we were relevant to the conversation. We don't have any air support. We saw the Taliban gaining momentum. And then I think the question for these soldiers were, you know, am I going to just try to get out of here? Do I want to fight these guys when they have the momentum and I don't have a U.S. backer me up anymore? I mean, I don't know all the calculations, but I can tell you, I, I you know, I fought out there with alongside many Afghans and yeah. I probably would have not be here talking to you uh, many times over if it wasn't for some heroic actions of Afghans. Yeah. So I, I know they're going to get a lot of uh, second guessing and quite frankly criticism for this. I just think it needs to, has a little more perspective behind it. Uh, and I think we really need to reconsider the way we develop armies and not create a situation where they're completely unsustainable as soon as we decide not to be there. For example, the F-16s that we gave the Iraqis, they don't fly because they don't know how to maintain them. And, you know, they can't get the, the you know, the parts that they need. Uh, they won't be able to get the parts they need for Humvees or Ford Rangers. I mean, try to find a, a place support for a Ford Ranger in the middle of Afghanistan. You know, but whatever, we gave them 3,000 Ford Rangers. So nothing gets Ford. 
But, you know, if you were trying to sustain any kind of military, you wouldn't pick, you know, one of the vehicles where it's literally impossible to get the replacement parts in the far-fled reaches of Afghanistan. So uh, that might be a little, uh, you know, wonkish on the, you know, the paramilitary guy side of me. But I think that's going to be one of the questions that we look look at in the future is how do we go about building militaries that have the capability of defeating a common enemy but then you know once we decide not to be there they can still exist in their own you know sphere of reality uh and i think that's going to be one of the things we do really look at well you you know another question i've heard or, or stance i've heard is well even if the taliban doesn't want to play nice. And if they doesn't, they don't want to play nice. And they 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 have all these resources that are, that are now there, right? Um, the only way to maintain them is with international support, which means they have to play nice to it at least some degree, because they won't be able to maintain what they have. Um, I mean, to your point, they don't have pieces, you know, for certain equipment and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Is do you think that is a good carrot to keep? I was say keep them in line, but keep them from going too far left? Well, I think we should certainly try to use it as a carrot, right? The international community, I mean, we've washed our hands of it and I mean, people will judge us for that forever, but that doesn't mean we just say, okay, well, Taliban can do whatever they want, right? So um, we've already seen Germany, NATO, a lot of other European countries just cut all support because they're like, I'm not gonna support the Taliban. I mean, they are a terrorist. We may not have designated them, but why am I gonna give them money to support? I mean. Think about it. I mean, a lot of these countries spend a lot of money trying to build uh, schools for girls. Mm-hmm. They're not going to mm-hmm. do it. So, I mean, what are you going to give the Taliban money for? So they've already cut it off, which means, which would have been to the benefit of the citizens, the people of Afghanistan, not going to happen. So, I mean, I think the UN and the international community has to do everything they can to moderate an extremist uh, group. Um, whether they'll feel compelled to do it, I don't know. I mean, they have, China's already, you know, they're, they're not closing their embassy. There's, there is a lot, and I just read something, this uh, long article on this today, of natural resources in Afghanistan. Um, and they can exploit it. And they can exploit it with, you know, countries like China, who really doesn't hold people accountable for human rights violations. That's not their thing. They look for natural resources and people to partner with so they can get the natural resources. Um, and then you also have Russia. Russia loves to get to get knee deep with um, despots. I mean, they're, they're the biggest backer of Assad. So um, this is, this is for them, this is a boondoggle. U.S. has zero influence, obviously, there now. And it's a country that has strategic importance. You know, it's between Iran, China, several other countries. Um, so I think we probably lost out on that too. But to your point, the U.N. and international communities have to do everything they can to moderate, mitigate, the uh, extremist uh, elements of the Taliban. Well, r- real, real quick tangent. I feel like, and let me know if I'm, I'm I could be, I'm definitely probably just crazy. Um, I feel like China and Russia, like every time the U.S. doesn't want something, like they're for it. Um, you know, the coup happened in, in Myanmar immediately. China, Russia, there. This happened here immediately. China. Is, is it? Is it like? It, you know, do, is it for them like anytime they can not dig at us, but anytime they can try to undermine the U.S., is that something they, they, they try for? Or is this, honestly, it's just resources here. So that, that's what it's about. So particularly with Russia, 
And I'll tell you a short story, which people who know me would be like, oh God, this story again. But um, I was uh, talking to a, uh, a general, a Russian general, believe it or not. Um, and he wasn't a bad guy, but uh, I got to know him fairly well. And uh, he told me one time that if I really wanted to understand Russia, that I didn't, I mean, I did want to know, but I didn't understand Russia, that I had a folktale um, that really spoke to it. I said, okay. And I didn't know whether it was a joke or, and he said, you know, so this guy's out fishing and he, he's at the end of the day, has some caught me fish. And then he finally catches this one fish and it turns out to be a magical fish. And he pulls it off the line and he, and the fish speaks to him. And the fish says, you get one wish, but there's a catch. Whatever you wish for, your neighbor will get double, right? And he thought for a while, and then he turned and he said, fish, I wish to be blinded in one eye, right? So I'm thinking this is a joke. I'm yeah. like, man, that's demented, right? I'm like, and then I, you know, later I talked to some real Russian experts because I wasn't. And they're like, oh yeah, that what he's saying is they will endure whatever hardship as long as their enemy, us, endures more, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like, you know, rising tides. You know, yeah, yeah, all yeah. They, you know, so it really saddened me because I, I kind of thought he was going with a joke. I was like, man, that is the worst joke I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, and, and then people, people later who really are familiar with their way of thinking saying, oh, no, they, they'd like to be the black. That's, that's part of their, you know, if there's Russians out there to be offended and want to call me on that, I don't know. But um, to your point, because now when I've started looking at Russia that way, uh, they just want to be the contrarians of the U.S. You know, they want to go back a fob because we don't want they want to. I mean, any kind of and, and, you know, maybe that's their whole national security strategy. Just do whatever is the opposite <laughs> of the U.S. Really. <laughs> I don't think China's that way. I think China really focuses on, you know, resources. They're a massive country with a massive population mm -hmm. and a Growth is, you know, pretty, pretty uh, high. So they have to find natural resources. And, you know, I mean, and I'm no expert on China. You know, I spent 20 years, I'm trying to be a lot more, I, at Russia, I'm getting much more savvy. But China, I spent all last night talking to somebody who is, you know, at Indo-Paytom. And, man, I mean, there's a lot of things that Americans, even people that are in the national security sphere, don't realize what they're doing in other parts of the world. Uh, it, and it all involves, natural resource exploitation, yeah, right? With very little concern for the population in which the natural resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think your point's correct, especially with Russia. And then China is more about, okay, so there's a vacuum here. I'm going to get in there and I'm going to not cast dispersions. I'm not going to tell them about their human rights violations. I'm just going to do business. And everybody from their perspective is a winner. So, so I would love to kind of just take everyone through the, the thinking process of a decision like this to pull out. Um, I, I heard an intelligence person talking on, again, listen to a lot C-SPAN, maybe too much, um, but he was saying how they do their analysis, they write their reports, and then it, it keeps going up a layer and layer and layer. And at every layer, it, if it's a bad report, it gets a little less bad, a little less bad. So then maybe what the president receives is, ah, it, things will be okay. Think, things might be rough, but what was initially written was like, this is not a good idea. 
Um, is that what happened? Like how, how, how does the president make a decision like this? And like, what's the process of getting that decision up, if you don't mind sharing? Sure. And it's important for people to understand. So the intelligence community, um, we actually don't weigh in on policy decisions. And we being like other than the CIA, but that's just one of what 16 agencies in the IC, but it's a really important one. So the intelligence agencies, they collect information. They have, you know, they have operators that do that. They have analysts that look at all the information from multi-sources and try to make, you know, have a position uh, uh, based on that. So they have an analysis. The analysis isn't pull out, don't pull out. The analysis is if we pull out, what happens? You see what I mean? So that's what the intelligence report said. Mm -hmm. To the point, does it get watered down as it goes up? Um, I could see that in the way that you might have, like, say the CI said, if you pull out within weeks, the Taliban will take over the government. And then the DIA, and this hypothetical, I have no idea. The DIA says, well, we think it's going to take longer than that. I mean, we think they're going to fight and it's going to go on for years. So they have to, they have to put those two t together. So it might look like it's getting watered down a bit. You see what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. But that is, that goes up, you know, everybody at a senior level, myself included in the last job was briefed every day on intelligence to the stuff that's relevant to you. So you see that, Oh, if we decide to pull out, it's, it says that we could either lose the country within three weeks or one year, but essentially it's saying they're not going to be able to hold out against the Taliban. So that's, that is what's supposed to be the basis of policy but it doesn't say do it or don't. And then all of that information goes into the National Security Council. Um, you start at a lower level where, you know, the people at my level uh, would talk about it with, you know, Defense Department. CIA is there to deliver the analysis, but they don't, they don't say do it or don't. And then you have the State Department, of course, which is primary diplomacy and treasury and et cetera. Uh, and then we come to... A, a suggestion. I mean, unless it's a lower level decision, at that level, we wouldn't make it. Obviously, to pull out troops, that's a presidential level decision. So we would shape the issues, and then it would go to the deputies, and then the principals, which of course is like the secretary, directors, and then if the president's in the room, then they call it the National Security Council. Um, but it's, it's, there's a process, and that process is supposed to hear all sides from every department, before the president weighs in, because you know how that works, the president says this, all of a sudden we're like, well, I don't got an opinion. Um, so you want that kind of discussion to happen without that. And I think in this case, and I, I only know from media reports, that most were against it. Most suggested that we maintain a residual force. You know, again, I, I don't know this, but I report to our General Miller, who was out there, General Milley, who was the chairman, General McKenzie is the CENTCOM commander and Secretary Austin, um, I don't think suggested this path forward. Uh, probably the director, Director Burns. Um, but again, that's just from media reports. That's a very unusual situation. Most presidents, I mean, they pick these people for a reason. If, if that, in fact, is true and they were universally or unanimously against it, it's, it's, a, it's a serious decision of the president to go against these top national security advisors. Um, but at the end of the day, he's commander chief, uh, or she one day, and they get to make this call. So that's generally the process. And then once he makes the decision, whatever it is, then it starts to reverse itself. And it's like, here's the decision and how we're going to go about executing. And it goes back down and then back to the 
departments and agencies to execute. Um, and I think that's what happened here. And there was a, you know, there was obviously, it caught people by surprise that they moved as fast as they did. Um, and that's where we saw the problems. And it's, it's, you know, obviously not even fixed yet because even if the, the situation in Kabul is somewhat stabilized, um, unless we can get Americans to the airport to get out, um, we're, we're on a timetable. We're supposed to still be out on the 31st of August. So, I mean, can you imagine when the 31st of August and we're all watching the news and, and they're reporting, oh, there goes the last military plane, the last American out of here. There's, you know, still 2,000 Americans that are sitting in the towel. Yeah. That's not, that's not going to work. Um, I, I know our time is running close and we got to wrap up. I do want to ask you, there's two other questions I'd like to ask. One is, this is not always about optics, but optics is important. Um, what does this say? Does this send a message to other allied countries, um, to people who, who are in conflicts who, who may help us? And does this send a message to them and does it hurt us in the future when we do need people to collaborate and work with us within uh, certain environments um, that may not be safe? Yes. The short answer is yes. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, if you looked at the, the situation we had in Syria, where we decided just essentially, in my opinion, um, leave the, the SDF, the, uh, the Kurdish led uh, force that helped us defeat ISIS, uh, you know, didn't back them up against Turkey. They had Turkey invade and take a lot of their territory. Um, and then, I mean, that didn't help for the future of partner operations, uh, period. And the next, hopefully there isn't the next time that we actually have to do something like Afghanistan, but if we do, um, it's going to be hard to get a local to work with us because, you know, unless we really take care of what we're doing, it's not over yet, not over yet, but unless we really do everything we can to show that we meant what we said, we said, you work with us, that you are our partner and we have an obligation to you. Um, that's what they have to believe. I think I, you know, I spent most of my career working with, other indigenous forces with indigenous forces. And I mean, those guys are willing to put it all on the line and, you know, die for the cause, but they don't want you to lie to them and they want you to hold up your obligation. And if that obligation is, you know, we're going to take care of your family. If you die fighting alongside us, I mean, nobody's good with dying, but um, they're much better if they actually believe what you're saying, that you're going to show up and take care of their family, just like, just like we are, just like you and I are. Right. So, your word is, really matters. And, and you know, they, they say there's no friends in, you know, international law. Yeah, well, I think there should be. And, and part of being a friend is if you're going to, if you say you're going to be there, you're going to be there. If you're not, then, you know, shame on anybody for trusting in the future. So I do think this, I mean, you're right. It's the optics, I mean, the optics were horrible. I mean, they said that they didn't want to see another Saigon. It looked identical to Saigon, you know, whether it was helicopters on the embassy, whether it was people clinging to the side of the plane. Oh, that happened in oh. Saigon in 1975, too. I mean, you can look at documentaries, and there was, yeah. it, it's gut-wrenching, because, you know, it's like, how desperate you got to be to sit on the side of a jet? Yeah. Um, it's, yes, there's, I'm sure there's utter chaos right now um, in Washington, because they have to fix this, and it's no easy task. Uh, I think we should all root for them fixing it. I think we should all um, understand that the current situation is very difficult and we've reinserted forces there and they have a really difficult job and uh, 
State Department people that are on the airfield are, you know, probably working 21 hours a day. And, you know, I mean, they, these people are, and they're in a very difficult situation, right? And that's an all-volunteer force. So we need to get behind the people that we have there. And, and we need to hold the leaders responsible for doing everything they can to hold up the obligations in the U.S. Uh, and and this, I want to put this question out there because I want to preempt any initial, any additional thoughts on this. I, I already start seeing comments. Um, some states, such as Maryland, Virginia, and other ones, other states have already said, "Look, we're opening our our lands. You know, if you guys send some refugees over, please do. You know, they'll take on so many." Um, and immediately, you know, you've already or I've already started seeing the comments. Well, should we be doing that because? You know, there's going to be some terrorists embedded and so on and so forth. Um, do, you, do you have any initial reaction to the fear of terrorists sneaking in within these refugees? So, I mean, that's, uh, it's super sad to see people start saying that, right? Because it's just xenophobic and it's, you know, the idea that, so let me track this, right? So an Afghan who puts it all on the line, working with the U.S. Army, fighting against the Taliban, and we provide a special immigrant visa is going to come to the United States and then turn into a terrorist against the United States. I mean, it's not even logical, right? So, yeah. uh, and just to have some kind of assumption that because one is Muslim, that they're going to be a terrorism is also completely false. So um, I'm all for screening, you know, people that come in, and that's why it takes so long, right? I mean, it's, it's not a rubber stamp. Uh, even even though you have you know the U.S. Marine Corps saying this person fought alongside us for two years in Helmand, they still have to go through a security process. Yeah. So it it's not it's not just like grab everybody and have them come to the United States. And so um, if in gen- general security terms, I think we should screen people to come to the United States, regardless of where you're from and what religion or race or ethnic group or anything like that. But to, to kind of like come up with the assumption that, well, they're Muslim and they're from Afghanistan. So we're, I just think it's just completely uh, misplaced. And I hope people would think more about like, well, who are these people, you know? And the United States does have a process to ensure that, you know, that's, that really is a note from the Marine Corps that says you work for two years, right? Um, and quite frankly, there's other ways for people to get in the United States that, that trying to go through the SIV process would, would not be the best way because it is highly scrutinized. So um, I would just say that, that these are some of the people that we would want to be American systems, citizens. We, we should actively seek the people who are willing to fight up against pirates in places around the world. And, um, and I mean, to me, they, they didn't know it, but they were like perfect Americans, in my opinion, because I think that's what Americans should want to do. We should stand up. Uh, to, to, to evil and we should stick up for what's right. And that's what I think these people did to earn that SIV and we ought to honor that. And I will be better off for it. So, so Mick, th- th- thank you so much for your time. You know, look, everyone, as you're listening, this is not the last time that you, go, you, you, you will be, hopefully not the last time you'll be with us, but if you, they can find you on TV all the time. Um, you're, you're regular contributor on ABC, correct? Yep, ABC News, absolutely. Um, he, yes, please, please, please yeah. go there. If you want to stay updated on what's going on, make us the, make us the guy. Um, I just want to ask you if, if someone wanted to help in any way or contribute in any way, what would that be like? What would that look like? How could they do this? 
So I'm glad you asked that, Alex, because that, that is, I'm getting that a lot, right? So I had to make sure I started looking it up because I wasn't about to keep saying, I don't know. I, don't know. Um, I know there's a lot of groups um, and like no one left behind and the groups that I've helped support and there's a lot of them. And then there's, you know, there's some that are less well-known that are just trying to get, you know, from the special operations community. That's all going on. But the, the for your listeners, um, there are a lot of states, there's a lot of states, I think you referenced, like that are, that are actively looking for people that will bring in, um, you know, these SIV folks when they get here. That's, that would be huge. And I know that a lot of people can't make that commitment. Uh, that's, a, that's a big one. But if you're willing to, do that. If you're not willing to, uh, or you just don't have the means to, and that's totally understandable, um, donate to some of these reputable groups that are out there really trying to uh, help these folks uh, when they get there. So maybe you can't like take one in your house, but you can certainly contribute to help somebody else take it out. Um, and I think that, you know, there's going to be a lot of um, second guessings on America's decisions when it comes to this, but we should pull together as a country and try to make the best out of what is the current situation. And that is helping these people that I think uh, really deserve it and have proven they, have, they do deserve it. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Everyone, if you, if you want to, if you want to, to contribute, and what I'll do is I'll make sure when we jump off today, I'm going to find a couple of those, those places. I'll put it in the description of the uh, interview today so you can click on some of those. You can always do your research. Google is a fantastic place that most of us <laughs> know. Um, thank you so much, kind sir. We'll be chatting again soon. Everyone, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. So Great discussion, Alex. That was really good. I've done a lot of these. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. <laughs>